And welcome everyone to the first week of our Marriage Matters class, first of ten. If you didn't intend to be in the marriage class, we have another class that a number of our folks are taking on the other end of the building, How We Got Our Bible, which is a terrific class. So if you've, uh, if you've given up on your marriage, you can go to that class. <laughs> but now you can't go because you'll be embarrassed to get up and admit you've given up. So welcome everyone, a delight to have you all here for this first of ten sessions for which we will have notes every week. The notes that are being distributed now are just for this week. Every week we'll pass out some notes to you. And this is a departure from our normal process that we've had for years where we give you the entire notebook at the beginning. And the reason we've departed from that is because as our church gets larger, that's more notebooks that we're giving out. If somebody comes one or two times, they they don't need that. But the other reason and more important is the people who come all ten weeks. Many of them will have ten notebooks by the end of those ten weeks. They forget their notebook every week. So we decided we would hand out the notes for that day, and then at the end we will give you the entire notebook. If you if you uh, want that, we'll have all the notes then in one place for you. So thanks for your indulgence with that. Let me tell you a little bit about myself and uh, my qualifications for leading this class, such as they are. Uh, my wife Kim and I have been married for 30 years. We celebrated 30 years in uh, February. And I would add, I know this is a statement that's always made, but very happily married as well. Uh, Not without our issues that we've had to work with, work through. But God in His grace has allowed us to do that, and I want to share some of that with you in the ten weeks that we, that we have together. But Kim and I have been married for 30 years. We were married at, both of us were 22 when we got married. And for many people, especially today, they would say that's too young. Uh, to get to get married, uh, there's no particular age that's prescribed in the Bible for for getting married. But what one has to understand when they get married is the purpose for which God has given marriage, and God has given marriage for the purpose of each helping the other to become more like Him. If you want a succinct definition of marriage, it's that God has given marriage for each to help the other. Become more like him. Now, that's not the way we normally think about marriage. We think about things like fulfillment. We think about things like uh, love, which we will see as an important component of marriage. But at its base, marriage is for discipleship. Marriage, like all relationships, is for the purpose of seeing one grow in the relationship, in the relationship with God. And Kim and I understood that even at that young age. We understood that because we had, because we'd been taught that. So you're not too young if you understand that and that's cemented in, in your mind. And I bring that up, one, because I want you to know at the outset a proper definition of what marriage is. Marriage is each helping the other to become more like Christ. But I also want you to lose the notion that you're married to the wrong person. And some of you have come into this room with that, undoubtedly. With the difficulties that you're experiencing and have experienced, you have said to yourself, I'm married to the wrong person. And you're willing to take this class because a friend invited you or because you saw our ad on, in face, on Facebook or because you saw it in the various venues that we have uh, advertised this. 
And you're willing to come as maybe one latch, last ditch. But if this doesn't work, then I'm going to pull the trigger, not literally, I hope, on filing. Because I'm convinced that I, I married the wrong person. And I bring it up in the connection with too young. I've heard that. I've heard all kinds of reasons why people say I married the wrong person. We got married too young. We didn't know what we, we didn't know what we were doing. And let me just say to you, friends, who might be entertaining that, uh, you're married to the person that God wants you to be married to. Right now, you're married to the person God wants you to be married to. Now, if there, I have to throw in this disclaimer, and then I'll move on. If there is abuse in your home, and if there is certainly danger in your home, you need to leave. And you need to leave uh, before you or someone else is harmed. And if we can help you with that, we will help you with that. I have helped people leave their home because there was physical danger. But outside of that, the annoyances and the difficulties and the travail, the trials of marriage are not reason for you to leave. In fact, God himself says so. Now, how do I, how do I know these things? Then? How do I know that this is what marriage is for, that marriage is for the purpose of each helping the other to become more like Jesus? How do I know that the person that you're married to is the person God wants you to be married to? How can I say those things with confidence? Well, here's how. Marriage is God's idea, and God wrote a book about it. And many of us know that implicitly, but we don't think about it explicitly. We don't think about it consciously. You know, who came up with the idea of marriage? And if he, if, if, if God came up with the idea of marriage, does he say anything about it anywhere? Has he written anything down that might instruct us? And the answer to that is yes. Now I say we know that implicitly. And I say it for this reason. Because many of you, and I would hazard to say the vast majority of you, when you were married, you invited God to the wedding. You invited God to the wedding because you got married in a church. Or if you didn't get married by a, in a church, you got married by a minister. Now, not everybody did that. Some of you got married in different places, maybe a justice of the peace. Uh, but most of you, and I don't know everybody here, but that's still the way most people get married. They want to get married in a church and they want to get married by a minister. Why? You know, God's got some connection to this thing. So let's get married in a God place with a God guy doing it. We invite God to the wedding, but not to the marriage. God's not invited to the rest of the years of our relationship. And I have seen that happen over and over and over again. That God came to the wedding, God was invited to the wedding, but not to the marriage. And I've seen it happen when I've seen people get married who did not go through premarital counseling and preparation for that marriage, which is the other thing I'm going to guess about most of you here, that you did not go through, through premarital counseling. Uh, now, those of you who I married, you did, because it's a requirement. In order for me to marry a couple, they go through premarital counseling. So that by the time they're finished with that, they understand whose idea marriage is, what marriage is about, what things that they will confront, and how to work through those things. And of all the people that I've been privileged to marry over the years, I've had one, exactly one couple divorce. 
And it was the one couple that did not go through premarital counseling. I consented to marry them. And I realized it was against my better judgment then. I won't give you all the reasons why I consented to it, but I did. And not only did I feel it was a mistake then, it turned out to be a mistake. The rest of the couples are all together these many years later. So most of you did not go through premarital counseling. Now again, your thought is, see, so I married the wrong person. So give me a do-over, okay? And I'll go through premarital counseling this time, okay? But you're married to the person God wants you to be married to. Now you're going to go through post-marriage counseling. That's in effect what this is. And when I counsel couples, when my wife and I counsel couples, I often start out, almost every time I start out by saying this. I say, look, before you even tell me what your problems are, I want you to know that whatever problems you have can be fixed. And here's how they can be fixed. They can be fixed if we have three things. If we have a husband who's willing to cooperate. If we have a wife who's willing to cooperate. That's the second one. And then the third one is an agreed standard to which we will submit ourselves. A husband who wants to get it done, he's going to cooperate. A wife who wants to get it done. And then the two of us agree to a standard that we're going to place ourselves under. Now, what would that standard be, do you think? It's the book. It's God's Word. It's the Bible. That's the standard for what marriage is, why marriage was given, and whether or not you're making progress in your marriage. And if you're not, what to do about the issues that are keeping that from from happening. So I say to you, as we go through this now more formal counsel, that the problems that you brought into this room can be fixed if we have those three things. If we have a husband who's willing to cooperate, a wife that's willing to cooperate, and a standard to which we agree to submit ourselves. But I warn you, every time I say that, the couple goes, yep, we're good with that. And then here's what happens. I start talking to the husband about the husband. And we get a few weeks into that, and the husband, the next, the third appointment, something came up, he can't make it. And then the homework that I gave him to do, he wasn't able to get around to that. And over time, he starts to drift off because he didn't sign up for him to have to change. He agreed to go to this counseling because she needs to change. Now, the same thing's true for her. So sometimes we start with a husband. Often I start with a husband for biblical reasons. Sometimes you start with a wife. But whoever, once you start getting into their stuff, if you start with a husband and the husband does stick around, the wife is like, I am so glad we are doing this. You know, and then the barrel moves over to her. And then you get a few weeks into that and she's saying, you know, I I didn't sign up for this. So when I say we've got a husband who is willing to cooperate and a wife who's willing to cooperate, what that means is we've got two people who are willing to say, I need to change. And if the Bible says I need to change, then I will submit myself to it. Now, this is, I think, my last statement that I'm going to make, my omniscient statement about people that I haven't met. But... 
I know this about all of you. You've got stuff you need to change. And the reason I know that is, again, because I've got this book and I've read this book. And this book tells me that you will and I will have stuff that needs to change until we're dead. Until you're in heaven, until you're perfect, you've got stuff that needs to change. So that being the case, I'm asking you at the outset then of our time together to commit to, I'm going to be a husband who's willing to cooperate. I'm going to be a wife who's willing to cooperate. And I agree to submit myself to what God says about what I'm to be as a person and then in my role as a wife and as a husband. And if you will agree to those things, and if you mean that, then the statement I make in those counseling sessions at the beginning holds true. Anything you've got going on can be fixed if we've got those three things. Now, I said you all have things that need to change. I don't know exactly what needs to change, but I know we all have things that need to change this side of heaven. And here's practically the way it works in our lives and in our marriage relationships. When we come into the marriage relationship, each of us comes into the marriage relationship with unchecked baggage. That's what I call it, unchecked baggage. That is, you brought in baggage, but your baggage wasn't checked. Now, the place for your baggage to get checked was before you got married. That would have been the best place. That would have been the premarital counseling piece. But most people didn't do that, so they get married and they've got baggage that hasn't been checked. You say, but you know, we dated for a long time. Now hear this. The luggage that you saw in the dating period, that's luggage outside of the real bag. See, the real bag's inside that thing. Dating's designed to deceive you. (laughs) Dating is not real life. (laughs) Here's a brother who's willing for his wife to be changed, apparently. (laughs) Way to step up, Larry. All right. But you've got... You've got the outer, you've got the outer appearance and you've got a, and you've got an unreal life situation during the dating period for most of us. And then we get, and then we get married or, or, or move in together as the case may be. And now we're together and we're seeing, you guys see on the graphic? Do you know why the graphic is chosen that way? You've got two towel racks. And one of them has towels that are neatly folded. That would be my wife's towel rack. The other one would be mine. Notice that there's a hamper right next to where those towels could go. Okay? But until we got married, we didn't know that we only needed one towel rack for her stuff. And that I didn't care about towel racks. But now we're married. And so I brought that unchecked baggage into our relationship. The dating is the bag is within the bag. And now you peel that bag off and now we got the real bag that we're seeing. And that baggage that you bring in comes principally from two sources. The two sources are these. 
the way you are and the way you were raised. That is, what you are naturally and then what you were taught to be by other people. That's the baggage. Now, there's what you are naturally. And you say, again, in the dating, if dating was a real deal, then I would know what you are when we're dating. But because it's the bag that's covering the real bag, I don't really know until we get into the stuff of life. So it, the baggage you bring comes from these two sources. There's who you are naturally. There's your personality and your propensities. And then there's what you were taught to be like by other people. How you were nurtured, your environment. And in marriage, what happens is you get two people bringing their baggage together. Usually unchecked. Well, now we're in this relationship for the honeymoon. And in the week of the honeymoon, some of this starts to show up. But, you know, it's the honeymoon. We'll settle in. We'll get in a groove. And you do get in a groove that goes downhill from there. If you're not careful. But you start, you start to see these things. Why, why does she do that? You know, when I was a kid, this is the way my parents did things. And he doesn't, he's not doing that. There's the way I was raised and there's the way you were raised. There's what I'm like and what I like. And there's what you're like and what you like. And now there's the comparing and the contrasting of those that's going on. And, and here's what happens almost invariably. Yours is worse than mine. I mean, I might have some baggage. But my baggage is like Ziploc, like lunch bags, okay? I mean, you've got Samsonites full of stuff <laughs> that you brought into this thing. That's the way I'm looking, that's the way I'm looking at you. So yeah, I've got baggage, but my baggage isn't that much. My negative baggage isn't very much, and my positive baggage is better than yours. So if this thing's going to get straightened out, here's what needs to happen. I mean, clearly, clearly anyone who's able to see knows what needs to happen. You've got to change. And my marriage is now a lifelong quest to change you. And, and before we move on, I, look, I already know all this. I already know th all this about you. I know this about all of you that were just elbowing each other. Okay? I knew that before you elbowed each other. And so since that is what's happening, since you have been on, however long you've been married, this quest to change the other person, let me just ask you to answer to yourself, how's that working out for you? Again, I know the answer to that too. And as a matter of fact, not only is it not working out for you, the more you're on that quest to change your spouse, the worse it gets. The Bible actually addresses this directly. Now, in the particular passage, it's addressing wives to husbands. It could just as easily be husbands to wives. And it says to the wives in a passage in a place called 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3 and verse 2, 
I'm paraphrasing, but it says, wives, stop nagging your husbands. Now, why is the wife nagging her husband? Because he needs to change stuff. And he's not changing. So, wives, don't, don't stop doing that. It'll make matters worse. You will drive him further away. And men, likewise. When you got married and the first time she cooked, and you said, my mom's was better, Mama used to do this. Every time you do that, she's saying to herself, if not to you, <laughs> then move in with your mom, okay? <laughs> so the quest begins. Most marriages, the quest begins to change each other. And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm really spending time on this because I'm trying to drive home at the very beginning. Hear me, friends. This course, these 10 weeks, are not about the person next to you changing. They're about you being willing to change. Now, when I say you being willing to change, Lord willing, that means the person next to you is willing to change. But I'm asking you to do this. I'm asking you to make that commitment. I'm a husband who's willing to cooperate. I'm a wife who's willing to cooperate. We agree to submit ourselves no matter what it says and no matter what I've got to do to the standard of God's word. I'm asking you to do that. And that means I'm telling you that you are willing to change and that you are willing to change quite apart from what your spouse does because here's the thing. I can't control your spouse and you haven't either. That's part of the reason you're here. You can't control the changes in your spouse either. But if both of you do that, it'll be a beautiful thing. So that's first. That's what I'm asking you to do. And I'm asking you to do that in a course called Marriage Matters. And on the front cover of your notes and also on the, on the uh, screen, you see the subtitle, Marriage Matters, Extraordinary Change Through Ordinary Moments. Now, why extraordinary change through ordinary moments? Because for some of you, you've come to this and it's been going on long enough that now there have been extraordinary moments. Not, I mean, we've had plenty of ordinary moments, but we've had now extraordinary moments. Now, what are extraordinary moments? When we fight, if you get, you know, fighting, having an argument, that's an ordinary moment. An extraordinary moment is when you're not yelling, you're shooting. Okay, that's an extraordinary moment. Or when that talk at the beginning that said, all right, if that's the way you want it, then go live with. And that actually happened. The person moved out. That's an extraordinary moment. We, big things have happened. And for some of you, big things have happened. And you've come here hoping to rewind the tape on those big things. So that we can fix the big things. But here I've come into a class that says we're going to look at extraordinary change, but do it through ordinary moments. How's that going to help me if I'm so far down the road that these big things have happened? 
that we're on the verge of filing. That we may not be living together even right now. And if we're living under the same roof, we're not sharing the same room. And if we're sharing the same room, we're certainly not sharing our lives. So how are we going to do this through ordinary moments? Well, here's how. I want you to consider this. That you got to those huge issues through a long series of smaller issues. The reason you got to the extraordinary moments is because of all of the ordinary moments that weren't handled over time. And further, if in your marriage you are at that point where you are at these extraordinary huge issues that have happened, and now we feel like our relationship is on life support, we don't know if it's going to make it. If you are at that point, I would suggest to you that if you are willing, if you have a spouse and you are willing to work on the ordinary things, then that's certainly a person who's willing to work on those larger things. And so I'm trying to make the case to you that sometimes in our marriage series, our marriage teaching, in the way we view it, we want to come in as though it's an emergency room to help the person who's come in on the gurney and about ready to ready to go. And that's our relationship. And the way we need to do that is not by extraordinary resuscitation, but rather for us to look at those ordinary things that happen and how they affect us and how they've affected you to bring you to where you are. Now with that, I invite you to page one of your notes. Introduction to Marital Change. And there is a book by this title, Marriage Matters. And we have copies of that book in our resource center. So if you want the book, in addition to these notes, then that book is available for you in our resource center, which is out that door and across the hall. And as we look at this introduction to marital change, friends, what I'm I'm trying to do is to help you move your marriage from or keep your marriage from becoming, move it from or keep it from becoming, an existence rather than a marriage. Because that's what too many marriages become, an existence, not a marriage. And I'm trying to help you to avoid becoming that old couple in the restaurant. Have you ever noticed them? My wife and I noticed the old couple in the restaurant. And here's the, here's the thing. Now we're becoming the old couple in the restaurant. But with that aside, you know, you guys heard me talk a few weeks ago if you were here about Bill Knapps and, you know, Bill Knapps. I mean, one of the reasons, one of the reasons I still long for Bill Knapps to be in business is because there were always people older than me there. And, and if it were still here, that would still be the case and that would make me feel good. But if you don't do this, I encourage you to do it. You go into a restaurant and you look especially at an older couple, a couple that looks retirement age, and look at them at the table and see what so many of them are doing. They're doing one thing. They're just eating their food. That's it. So many of them are not interacting with each other at all. And the closest they come to interacting with each other is when he barks out, pass the salt. 
And then she tells him what the doctor said about him having salt. <laughs> okay. But at least they're conversing at this point, okay? Now, you may not notice that, but I notice it because I do marital counseling. And I'm telling you that that couple did not get there last week. That's years of ordinary moments that weren't dealt with. And they don't much like each other. But they're married. And they've got an arrangement and they have an existence. And we're trying to help you to avoid that. So page one, middle of the page. How does God fit into this picture? I said at the beginning, many of us invited God to the wedding, but not to the the marriage. And when you were married, think back to that and think about one of the prominent themes for you as to why you were getting married. And there may be lots of things as to why you were marrying this particular person. You know, we're soulmates. We see life the same way. I really enjoy being around him or her. All kinds of things you could say about that. But somewhere in there, love was in the mix. You know, we're in, we're in love. I love him. I love her. And you believe that. And you believe that sincerely. We're in love. We love each other. But what definition of love were you using? And this is where not inviting God to the marriage starts to affect you in practical ways. Because your marriage was based on love, but you didn't know what love was. And the reason you didn't know what love was is because without knowing God and inviting Him to the marriage, it's impossible for you to do that. Just like marriage is God's idea, love comes from God. So if you're going to have a marriage that's based on love, that marriage is going to have to have God as central to it. And that's why at the very beginning of this, in the middle of page 1, We talk about God and love. The first line, God is love. And when you find it hard to love, you need him all the more. That next paragraph, and you'll notice I'm not going to, I won't read through all of the notes. That's why we provide them to you. But I'll highlight and comment and try to tie together the notes we have. That second paragraph, the ordinary irritations and problems in marriage are often love problems. We don't feel loved or we're finding it hard to show love. And here's a classic passage in the Bible about love. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Now that passage, top of page 2, identifies three ingredients that are necessary for the ordinary moments in your relationship to become extraordinary moments of change. The first is this, recognize that God indeed is love. That God is love in his character and the source of love is this God. 
The only reason that we have marriage is because God invented it. And the only reason we connect love and marriage is because God did that first. So God is going to have to be part of the equation. So we say here, God, we all want more love in our marriages. For the most part, we marry because of love, or at least because we hope for it. But in the most difficult moments, we don't feel loved and we find it hard to do it. God may not seem like much difference, seem to make much difference in these moments, but his involvement is crucial. If you're having trouble loving, now hear this, either you don't know God or something is interfering with your relationship with God. If we believe that God is love, then he must be the solution for a lack of love. So that's the first thing. If, if you are finding it hard to love the person next to you, if you're finding it hard to love in the difficulty that is the circumstance of your marriage, then God is the solution to that. If you're not able to love, it's either because you don't know God or something is interfering with your relationship with God. We want to help you identify that as we move forward. So God is love. He is the source of love. He is the one we need if we're to love. And the way we love is this way. B, on page two, we need to love as he does. So how, how does that happen? There are four things that the Bible tells us about true love. The first one is it's found in a person, God. Love can be exciting. It can feel wonderful. But ultimately, it's a person. He's a person, not an experience. So let me stop there for a moment. Is that the way most of us define love? The answer is no. We define love as the, the emotional high. And that emotional high can easily become an emotional low. And you find it in our language, right? We talk about being in love or falling in love. And now we're no longer in love, we say. So that betrays our understanding of love, that love for us is an experience or primarily an emotion, but it is first a person. And then secondly, you see here, love is an action. So love involves emotion, but love is not at its base emotion. And that's why when the Bible describes love, if you care to jot this down, you can. It's 1 John 3, 16. 1 John 3, 16. The passage at the bottom of page 1 is 1 John 4, but in the chapter prior, 1 John 3.16, it says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for others. So, when was the last time you heard a song on the radio, a top 40, talking about love, and talking about love that way? Anyway, um, so let me stop here for a moment. Rob, was that you, Rob? Okay, I, I thought maybe you made a song. Okay, so apparently there's a, a song on the radio that has John Cougar. All right, I'm sure that'll be helpful to you if you, if you get an opportunity to listen to that. So the last time somebody heard that definition of love on the radio was last week. Rob heard it, okay? Now to the rest of you. When was the last time you guys heard? <laughs> what you heard was you've lost that love and feeling, right? 
You heard, where did the love go? As if love is this thing that comes and goes. When in reality, middle of page two, love is an action. And that's why love is an action verb in the Bible. So it's not primarily emotion. The the most condensed chapter on love in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13. And some of you had this read at your wedding that you invited God to. Love is patient. Love is kind. You guys remember that? It's a beautiful passage. Verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. A beautiful passage to read at a wedding or any place else. But notice what it is. Love is these things. It is these actions. It is patient. It is kind. So let me give you a working definition of love that you can jot down if you care to. Love is this, according to the Bible. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Love is doing what's in the best interest of someone else. So feelings follow from that. But feelings are not primary. Love is what I do, and it's what I do for somebody else. Love is doing what is in the best interest of someone else. Now that presupposes that I have to know what's in that person's best interest, which means I have to know what the end game is, and I gave you the end game right at the beginning. Marriage is for the purpose of each to help the other become more like Christ. So now as I act toward my spouse, now as I do toward my spouse, I'm doing what's in his or her best interest, namely to help them become more like Christ. Love is an action. Love is, thirdly, willing to sacrifice. So sacrifice means to give up something that's precious. So because I'm committed to doing what's in your best interest, I'm willing to give up some things that are precious to me for your benefit. And ultimately, I'm willing to give myself for you, for your benefit. And then our love is motivated by God's love for us. Since God so loved, the passage says, we also ought to love one another. Marriages change when we're willing to love in practical Christ-like ways, especially in difficult moments. God loves us. He's shown us love by his example. The Bible tells us that Jesus is, in the passage we read, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It means he's able to remove from our hearts all the obstacles that keep us from loving. As much as we may say we want to love, sin squashes that. Jesus isn't just an encouraging coach or an example. He's our champion who's able to defeat the giants that would never, that we would never be able to tackle on our own. So God is love. We need to love as God does. That's His definition of love. And grasping the depth of that love for us, that in turn motivates us to love others. Look at that last sentence. Marriages change when we're willing to love consistently over time, not because our spouses change but because we're in a growing relationship with God. Not because our spouses change. You guys have heard me quote those great theologians in the past, the monkeys. And I think Lenny Kravitz may have updated the song. Rob, let me know. But Okay, okay, okay. Yikes, thanks for that confession, country, yikes. But I thought love was more or less a giving thing. 
It seems the more I gave, what? The less I got. So the idea is there, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give, but there's got to be. So what we have is in our minds a 50-50 arrangement. I give my 50%, you give your 50%, and then we got 100%. See, love is sacrificial, which means I'm willing to give 100% of myself in your best interest. And it's not I give if I get, or it's not I give so that I'll get. I give because that's what love is, and that's what God has shown, and that's what God calls me to. And that's what's in your best interest. Now, if you have two spouses doing that, you have a beautiful marriage. If you have one spouse doing that and another not doing it, now what? And that's the top of page three. There's God and love, but then there's love and grace. And what that first half of page three is telling you is that God in his grace gives you the ability to do what you could not do otherwise. Because some of you are sitting there thinking, you're going, I can't do that. He or she is here, and they they are not reciprocating. They are not participating. And you're telling me, more important, God is telling me, that I need to pour myself into the best interests of this person. I can't do that. And I would simply say to you, that's correct. And God is asking you to believe that he is good enough to you because he's the one who invented love and he has sacrificed and sacrifices for you. He is asking you to believe that he will do for you what you can't do. That's the relationship between love and grace. God will give you the grace to do what you otherwise can't do. Top of page three. Grace is another way of talking about God's love. It's more than a helping hand. It's God's love given to rescue us. Though we don't deserve it and we have no hope of rescuing ourselves. If you look down at the third paragraph. We often have a narrow understanding of God's grace. We understand we enter a relationship with God by grace. But then we live our lives as if it's our duty to earn God's approval. By trying our hardest to do what God requires of us. To live good lives. To be good people. To be good enough. And to meet the standard. But the Bible says we need God's unearned power all the time. And God promises to give that. That's what I'm telling you. So there's God and love. But then there's love and God's grace. Giving you the power to love. And then lastly there's grace and marriage. Consider this account. Of one very ordinary moment. In a pastor's marriage. And by the way, this this pastor is not yours truly, though it certainly could be, even though the name of the wife in this account is Kim. But that seriously, that's just coincidental. He says, I could feel my blood pressure rising. With every passing moment, I was getting more and more angry. It was 2.30. My son's baseball practice was at 3. My daughter had a birthday party at 4. I had to lead a Bible study at 5. What's more, my wife was not answering her cell phone. I'd been calling for every five minutes since 1, and now it was almost 2.30. And you know what? Let me stop. Now as I'm reading through this, this is about us, isn't it? As a matter of fact. I can so, I can, let me just say, friends, I can so relate to what I'm reading here, all right? 
She should have been home long ago. She knew I was on the schedule and she assured me she'd be home on time. How am I going to prepare my Bible study with all this taxiing to do? She not care that I'm juggling all this by myself. My anger mounted as I could picture chatting with friends while her cell phone set to vibrate, hummed away unnoticed in her handbag. I resign myself to plan B. All three kids are going to go to baseball practice. Girls will have to play in the empty part of the field. I'll sit in the van and work on my Bible study, but there's going to be distractions. I'm going to want to watch the practice. The girls will need to be watched. They'll get bored. They'll start asking for things. It's not ideal, but it's going to have to do. I barked orders at the kids to get ready. All right, now you guys just see here what's happening. I'm angry, right? There are a hundred questions. Where's, where's mommy? Why do I have to go to baseball practice? Am I going to miss my party? Where are my shoes? Can we stop at the store and get a snack? Every question was a frustrating reminder. I shouldn't have to be dealing with this. Then the phone rang. When have you been trying to call me? Yes. Injecting as much sarcasm as possible in that one word. I have to get Gresham to practice and Charlotte to her birthday party. I'm not prepared for Bible study. Why haven't you answered your phone? I didn't hear it ringing in my bag. I'm so sorry. I'll be home in a few minutes. I just couldn't get away as soon as I thought I could. Instead of waiting for Kim to return and let her deliver our son to practice, I loaded the kids into the car, took them myself, and when I returned home 15 minutes later, Kim was there wondering why I hadn't waited. She retreated to a safe distance. I sat alone, staring at the kitchen table. I was more than just annoyed. I was fuming. Beneath the anger, I also felt embarrassed and ashamed. Part of me felt justified in my anger, while the other part of me wondered why I'd gotten so worked up. Irritation would be understandable. Anger? My response was out of proportion, and I knew it. I soon realized that part of my frustration stemmed from the fact that this feeling was familiar. It's even ordinary. How often have I been angry with Kim because I felt she hasn't stopped to think about me? And how often have I had the same pouty reaction and witnessed the same destructive result? I was tired of reliving this moment. Tired of the same old argument and getting the same old result. And that's what's been happening with many of us. Same reaction, same irritations, same result, but building up over time. And now we come, for many of us, to a crisis point. Now, our time is up. I want you to see page 5, 6, and 7. And I warned you at the beginning that there would be homework, if in our remaining nine weeks together you will be willing to go through this, then it will be of maximum help to you. We're not going to check it. We're not going to talk about it. But there's a section for you to do on your own. You see page five there? It says in bold, on your own, read this passage that we have for you there and answer some questions about it. Then if you look at page six, there is building your relationship with each other as a couple. And here's a passage of the Bible and then some questions for you to answer regarding that. And then page 7 has some final considerations, okay? All right. Let's ask God to help us this week and to bring us back safely next. Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you that marriage was your idea. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in the dark to grope with regard to why you have brought us together, what marriage is supposed to be, how love is to act. But rather, you have told us in your word who you are, who we are, and how we are to behave toward one another, in particular in the marriage relationship. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. 
your goodness to us in giving us light in the midst of what otherwise would be darkness for us. Help us to ponder this week what we have learned in this first session. Help us to even begin small ways to put into practice what we've learned, to think about why these irritations become anger so easily for us. And Lord, I pray particularly for those for whom the marriage has gone very deep in a negative way. And I pray your grace upon them. I pray your grace upon their hearts and upon their actions as they love one another this week. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.